3. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if anything you have it, and if any, let's try that in English, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Lord, our ultimate hope, our ultimate glory is in you, in you alone. It is not here, it is never, never has been. Lord, as the world continues to move, as things continue to occur, let us be, let them be reminders to us that you are coming back. You have not forsaken, you have not forgotten, but you have redeemed, you have saved, and you have secured us. Lord, strengthen us for the work that you have us to do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
And once you find and you answer your question, actually read the story and see what you can actually learn about God and what God is doing. Okay? Am I forgetting anything? Elaine is not telling me I'm forgetting anything on there, is she? <laughs> no. Not yet. Mm -hmm. Not yet, okay. <laughs> if so, it'll pop up there and they can tell us, like, there is actually a little chat feature, so people that are listening online can actually say something, so no, no, we should allow them that sort of power. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Beth is the one who actually takes advantage of the most when she's not here. She she picks on us, which we would expect that big less. All right, well, if there's nothing else, again, we're supposed to have a business meeting today. We already announced that when it comes to church council and business meetings, when we can actually get people together for these meetings and not worry about being arrested, then we'll have them again. In the meantime, as much of a report as we can give, we are... Uh, when you go back and look at financials from March, we are basically on budget. We are on track for April, so we're not in any danger of closing the doors. We, uh, we have money in the bank. We're covering all the bills, so we are not in danger that when we are able to open back up, there won't be anything to come back to. So we are in good shape in that regard. And again, I say for everybody who's been sending in uh, offerings because they haven't been able to come here, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you. It keeps everything on ongoing, keeps everything up to date, so that is awesome. Yeah. 
Debbie was going to do this other thing today. So he's peeling me off the ceiling. He's going to do it. Warning you now. Stuff organized and ready to go. We are still in First Thessalonians. <clears throat> Just so you know, if you didn't go home and read the entire book, which shame for shame. There are five whole chapters, but it's still going to take us a while because we're going to slow down as we get into the meat of this. Last week, chapter one, we met the people. We saw who sent, who's receiving, how they got started. We've seen Paul rejoicing. Now we're going to get a little bit of explanation of discipleship. And this is going to matter moving forward because this book is going to deal with issues of discipleship and Christian living. And so in order to understand them when we get there later on, we have to have a framework and a foundation that is built at the beginning so that we actually have something to build on and discuss. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> it's going to be one of those weeks, huh? This is where chapter 2 starts to become a transition from an introduction to a formulation of a, a theology of discipleship. So Paul's concern, Paul's reason for the letter is built on the fact that he cares about them. Why does he care about them? Because they are his people. He is their people. Why is that so? Because of the work that Christ has done. All of that kind of gets fleshed out in the second introduction, which is actually chapter 2. So, 20 verses, let's go on ahead and read all of them. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, for a short while in person, not in spirit, 
were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope, or joy, or crown of exaltation? It is not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, for you are our glory and joy. He kind of likes these people, doesn't he? Dig through this as we uh, make our way through. Some fun little things in here that will, again, set a foundation for the actual issues that uh, caused this letter to be written. So, verse 1. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. And this is a double-edged sword. We want to make sure we catch both understandings here. Of course, Paul's going to Thessalonica and ministering there was not in vain, Acts 17.4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Paul went, God saved, church grew. This is good news, right? The work was not done in vain. Question? If Paul had gone and done all of those things and no church was formed, was his work in vain? No, no it is not. That's something we have to remember. We do not judge faithful Christian work by the earthly results it produces. Do we want people to be saved, churches to grow? Yes, but if they do not, and we are faithfully proclaiming Christ, have we succeeded? Yes, yes we have. So let's make sure we catch that. Our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. This is fun history. Because it points to Paul's work and explains, I don't know to say this, it doesn't explain, but it demonstrates everything Paul has been writing and teaching to churches and everything he's going to write and teach to churches. He doesn't just come up with these ideas and be like, hey, you know what? You should live like this. No, Paul is saying, this is how you should live because this is how I live. So rewind your history book a little bit to Acts chapter 16 and let's figure out what's all this Philippi business. It happened that as they were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having the spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her master's much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, stop. Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be helpful if you're Paul? This, this girl who's fortune-telling, basically demon-possessed child, woman, whatever, is proclaiming the truth, right? Wouldn't that be good? Well, what happens when evil people proclaim things about you? What happens to people who believe? They don't believe you, do they? Plus, do you want that kind of testimony of your fault? Do you need that kind of testimony of your fault? She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to, said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Now, fast forward a little bit. The crowd rose up together against them because the guy who was making money off demon possessing the woman was, you know, fortune telling and getting paid. So he stirs up a rabble. The crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to, I'm sorry, and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rocks. That had to be a fun afternoon. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. I think that qualifies as, as having suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. 
if you continue reading, this is the, uh, the story of the Philippian jailer. Paul has a chance to break out of prison and doesn't. And because he doesn't break out of prison, he ends up proclaiming Christ to this jailer who becomes a Christian. Paul is walking the talk he gives to the churches. Would you like to know what it looks like to be more than conquerors in this world? Acts chapter 16 gives you a good example of that. Faithfully proclaiming, faithfully traveling, not caring what the world gives to you, not caring how the world treats you. This is why Paul could write to the Philippian churches and say, he knows how to live with plenty, he knows how to live with nothing, because it is Christ who strengthens him. He could tell the Philippians that because they knew firsthand Paul demonstrated that. The Thessalonians are in the same boat. We read the end of Acts 17 last week. Paul proclaims the gospel in this area. People are saved. The church is growing. They loved that, didn't they? The town just loved that. No, no, the town didn't love that. And the, the rabbit comes up. They drug Jason out. They beat him. No good came from that in the town. But is God praised? Is his work glorified? Is the spirit sent? Are people being strengthened? Does it matter? What the world does, my water keeps trying to run away from focus. Yay! It hasn't hit me yet. I managed to catch it every time, but it's bugging me that it keeps doing that. <sighs> of all the things to worry about on Sunday morning, <laughs> Paul demonstrating what faithful living looks like amidst opposition. This is a good lesson to follow. Um, keep watching the news. It's not getting better. Not only is it not getting better, it's actively getting worse. I, I, I joked at the beginning of this that we had signed up for all the dumb. I thought we had reached the end of the dumb, but every time I think we, we hit peak silliness in our world, the world goes, challenge accepted. Here we go, we got more, and it's like, oh, more. This is coming. The world thinks everything that is not falling right in line with what it wants is insanity and needs to be crushed. That will include the message of Christ because it has always included the message of Christ in history. We need to be prepared. How do we worship and serve and minister in a hostile world? Not, not an ambivalent world that just enlightened, but in a hostile world. It's coming. And we have examples of what faithful service in spite of that looks like. We would do well to read them and understand them. So, verse 3. Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. What is Paul proving about himself and how is he doing it? Should you catch this? Two sides of the coin, right? If he's not coming in error, then he is proclaiming the truth. If he is not coming with impurity, then his motives are pure. And if he is not coming by way of deceit, then the means and modes in which he is proclaiming the message is good and faithful and true. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. This is a consistent message in the ministry of Paul, 2 Corinthians 4. Since we have this ministry, as we have, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, amending ourselves to every man's conscience and the sight of God. This is one of the ways you know how you have been changed. You have been changed by the Holy Spirit. What do you love? What do you serve? And what do you want to be true? See, this is part of the hard thing of Christian living. Is the default of the world is I want what I want. Christian living says, I don't care what you want, 
hearts. The Holy Spirit changes that motivation so that even though part of me still wants that old sinfulness, that new creation, that spirit that is indwelt, wants the things of God. I want to discipline this part based on what God has given me in his word. Does that make sense? This is part of the change that is brought. We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. God is, has, and will examine the heart and motivation of every human being. Christian, it is important that we do the same. That we examine ourselves by not our standard, because what's our standard? <laughs> Broken, busted, and sinful. We want to examine by God's standard what has been revealed. We evaluate ourselves against what He commands, what He has taught. And when we find that we're wrong, and that is how I phrase that, when we find that we're wrong, that is, when, then it is incumbent upon us by the power of the Spirit that He's given to begin fighting to change. And again, I said that that way specifically, to begin fighting to change, because the tendency is to, is to lean, put that flag around, and actually get on path. It's a war. It is a battle. This is why when Paul talks about discipleship, he talks about disciplining himself like a boxer, or preparing as a runner. Who here likes running? I did like that, and she's weird. <laughs> And I still contend runners don't actually like running. They just like other people to think they like running. You're not convincing me of this. You're just not. <laughs> Most of us normal people. <laughs> Why does running work? It's hard on the body. Especially at first. But as you do it over time, what happens? Do what? Endurance, yes. And I, and, I, and I do have some experience with this. I used to run two miles a day. I destroyed my knees in the process. But I used to do this. This is one of the reasons I don't like running. Yeah, well, yeah, the $8 Walmart shoes probably didn't help the process. But then when you, be, when you begin, it's rough. It's brutal. Over time, it's like, I'm still just kind of cruising along. Welcome to Christian living. You have to actually stay in the fight. And it is. It is a fight. It is a war. Another reason I think Paul uses boxing. You ever actually boxed? No. So the people ask, like, why are boxing ESPN was doing all these old classic boxing matches, matches from the 60s and 70s, and Tanner says, how long are these rounds? Three minutes. And she kind of had this look, like, just go, go into the other room and just punch as hard as you can for three minutes. There's a reason why they don't do that. It's exhausting. Yeah, they do that 15 times. There's a reason why after about 10 or 11 punches, you see these guys kind of walking around in a circle hugging each other. It's like... <laughs> I need a minute. Then I'll beat you up some more. Right now, I need a minute. It's work. Paul uses these examples because these are things people would have seen as hard work. This is Christian living. It is hard work. But it will be successful, not because of our perseverance, but because of God's. His change, altering who we are, changing our heart, mind, and motivation, guarantees that we will be secure and that we will be successful in this endeavor. So, just in case you didn't get all that, Paul wants to make absolutely sure. Hence, verse 5. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, 
nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. This is one of those does. If you had to describe the mission of Paul's life, what would it be? Yeah, proclaiming Christ. Like, that dude just walked into a room and is like, who can I tell about Jesus? I mean, that was just what he did. You throw me in jail, I'm going to tell somebody about Jesus. You put me in the king's court, I'm going to tell somebody about Jesus. You leave me in the synagogue, I'm going to tell somebody about Jesus. You stand in the market square, I'm going to tell somebody about Jesus. That was just what Paul did. Now, with that comes earthly reward and gain and, and, and exaltation, right? From 1 Corinthians 2, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. By very definition, functioning and living in that way, is, here's your uh, big scrap word, it eschews worldly gain. It casts you know, it eschews, that's not enough that you get in stores. <laughs> it sends it away, it casts it off, it does not care. Why not? Well, when you get out of jail after being beaten and thrown into preaching Christ, do you really think the world is on your side? This is one of the benefits of persecution. Folks are coming back to this. Paul is purified from a worldly gain, from a worldly desire, because the world has not tried to give him anything. This is why the lowest of the low of society, more often than not, make the best Christians. Because they get it. The world has kicked them in the teeth so many times. They're like, I don't want anything from you people. <laughs> but God will grant everything. That's what I want. I don't want what the world gives. I've seen what the world gives, and it stinks. It's hard. This is what we have to discipline ourselves for, because more often than not, the testimony of most people in our country at this time frame is that life is pretty good. Overall, life is good. Not for everyone and not all the time, but overall. Which means we have to actually do extra work because the lie of the world has been to give and to soften. And while it's softening you to it, where are you hardening? You're hardening yourself towards God. See, the gospel message is the opposite. As you soften towards God, you actually harden to the world. So as they bring out the big shiny object, you go, no, no, I don't want that. A couple of years ago, you had to do that way. Now, here's the thing. When Satan finds out that his deceit isn't working, does he put the shiny object away and give up? No, he gets newer, bigger, shinier object. Harden yourself to the world. This is an active process. Determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Determined to live and worship and serve in God's kingdom and not the world. Determined to live a life of discipleship and discipling. Meaning, as I am focused on learning, I am focused on teaching. Because as I am teaching, I am learning and I am disciplining myself. Paul continues, verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Paul was definitely not afraid of his family side. <laughs> I would describe me like that, but you know, Paul was a better guy than I was. Now, notice you're comparing your contrast. They were not proud. They were
They were not demanding, and they were not forceful. They were teachers, providers, and nurturers. Notice the opposites of those two things. We're going to come back to them shortly. They're going to matter. Verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you that we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. This is what godly discipleship and disciple-making should look like in a church. If you rewind to the end of John, when Peter is restored by Christ standing on the beach, what was the command Jesus kept giving him? Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. It was what? It was to do the work of what profession? Of a shepherd. Why? Because who is Christ? He is the great shepherd. What is Peter now? Peter is the under-shepherd. He is doing the work of the shepherd in real time. That's why Peter explained it this way, 1 Peter 5. I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief, chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unsaving crown of glory. This is what leadership is supposed to look like. Now notice, I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about leadership in church in general. Because guess who can't run everything? Guess who can't disciple everyone? Well, again, you know where the majority, I used to make this argument all the time, but uh, teaching school, I tried to make this argument with parents, it didn't work always. Youth ministry, this was always a fight. Tell parents all the time, look, I'm going to get your kid for like an hour on Sunday morning. If I'm lucky, I'll get them back for an hour on Sunday night. And then maybe an hour on Wednesday if you're really, really dedicated. You got them for dinner? Every night of the week. You got them on weekends, and school's got them for six to eight hours a day. I got no shot of winning that war. None. Not by myself. No chance. You have to be in the fight. You have to be actively engaged, and you have to make disciples. I will do everything that I can to supplement that and give everything good that I had in my three hours a week that I had your kids. But other than that, you actually have to do hard work. And you know how many of you would give me a weird look when I say that? We paid you to do that. If I gotta raise my kids, what are you here for? You know, I ask myself that, I think that who is around the people you love the most? Hopefully you are. Who cares about them the most? Hopefully you do. Yes, I said hopefully now. With with the lockdown going on, domestic violence cases are going up. Stop meeting your wives. Take things I shouldn't have to say for a thousand, Alex, right? Don't mistreat your spouse. If you care about these people and you love them, do you not wish to spend eternity with them? Do you not wish to disciple them and build them up so that if no one else is secure, you know that they are secure? That starts with you working out and then your little circles as they keep going out. That does not look like a beating. It's not like, you will believe <laughs> Sometimes with the children, that's necessary. Saying it's ever happened in my house. <laughs> but more often than not, what's the old adage? 
catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Congratulations. The gospel has enough offense built into it. I mean, don't you just love waking up every morning going, you're a dirty, rotten, evil sinner? That's not your uh, Saturday Night Live uh, affirmation. I'm smart enough. I'm good enough. Gosh darn it, people like me. No, that's not how Christians start the day. We remind ourselves of our shortcomings and our failures, and then we look to the success and the work of Christ. And then we are lifted up because in spite of ourselves, he has redeemed because of his work, not my own. And then I recognize all the things that are no good in me, and I war against them. I run from them and fight them. When you want your fellow believers to do the same, you don't sit there and be looking, I can't believe you did that. It's discipleship based on love and care and concern. Let's be honest. You know the difference when someone looks at you and says something that they don't like about you. You know when they're picking at you and you know when they care about you, right? They know that about you too. They know when you care and they know when you're just being insulted. Our goal as Christians is to actually care about people, to care about their soul and their eternal destiny. And that works itself out in daily living. It works itself out in discipleship and correction that is actually based on them growing, not you just feeling good because you've got to pick out the problem and pick. So, verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Right. First Thessalonians gives us no clue on this type of burden, but anywhere there is a first Thessalonians, that means there is a second Thessalonians. And chapter three actually helps us out with that burden understanding. You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. So Paul is saying is, we could have imposed on you. We didn't. Why not? Because we wanted you to see what godly discipline, discipleship, and caring about you actually looks like. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved towards you believers. Now, Paul goes to an Old Testament standard here. How many witnesses do we have? Two. More than two. You are witnesses, so the, the church is witnesses, but you're like, yeah, we're one church. So that is God. And so is God. This goes back to your Old Testament standard, Deuteronomy 19. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Paul appeals to that, and he appeals to that to say what? That they were devout, upright, and blameless in how they behaved. In other words, Paul is arguing that he, Silas, and Timothy met the standards that Paul has set. What standard is that? You might ask. First Timothy chapter 3. An overseer, an elder, is to be above reproach. This is my favorite standard in all of Scripture. Define above reproach. <laughs> See, we don't ask that question out loud nearly enough because we make a mistake with this. So often we assume that Scripture is black and white. And that's because in your mind it is. Because once you've settled on something, that's the answer, right? 
and everyone who disagrees with you is obviously what? That is obviously wrong. They're obviously incapable of seeing this rightly, therefore they need to listen to me. Because I've already figured this out. The reason why we have this more often than not is because scripture is intentionally gray on a lot of things. And the reason scripture is intentionally gray is because life is gray. How often are you presented with a decision in which it is just clear-cut, that's right and that's wrong? More often than not, you're kind of like, mm, I think you should do this, but I can see why this would occur. And you need to do what? You need to apply wisdom. You do this with people. See, it doesn't say that the elders of your church, the leadership of your church, are to be perfect. They are to be what? Above reproach. Meaning, if... I can give a decent example. If some woman just randomly comes into the back and goes, you know, I'm having the pastor's baby. I don't know why she has to have a southern accent for a trailer park, but she does. It's my story. Don't you judge me. And she's not Cameron. The goal of my ministry in life should be your immediate thought being, this is a scam. Because my immediate thought is, this is a scam. If you're sitting there going, I wonder when he had time to do that. I've done something wrong. No, I'm serious. I have done something wrong. Because that's not above reproach. Your first thought should be, huh? What? Okay, come here. We, we need to talk this one out. See, if your first thought is, Huh, I knew there was something squirrely about that guy. <laughs> and while there may be, not like that. We've lost her. Just so you know, we've lost her. This is what above reproach looks like. Now, is that a fixed standard? No, no, it's not. It's intentionally gray. Again, because life is intentionally gray. So what's Paul's explanation? We're devout, we're upright, we're blameless. He meets his own standard. Titus 1. An overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict. See, I read the Titus one for a reason. You get the same list in 1 Timothy 3, but Titus gives you and I love having a why. See, this matters because of verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Verse 12. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's go back to Titus 1. You do all of these things so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. See, Paul and company did this with the Thessalonians so that the Thessalonians would grow in Christ and be sanctified. They would grow as Christians. They would walk the walk because they trusted the people who were leading them and they saw the direction in which they were this is the goal of Christian living. It is not just so that you can sit there one day and go, the pearly gates, I made it. It's so that you can live a life of discipleship, so you can disciple others, so that you can strengthen the faith of those that God has placed into your care. Because at some point, almost all of you will be counted as elders. It's a scary thought, isn't it? 
mean, unless God takes you home early, you will at one point be one of the older people in the room. You will be the trusted, wise leadership. That should terrify us when it comes to children and grandchildren. It should absolutely terrify us. And if it does, you know what it should do? That terror should spur us to action. See, you ever want to get a group of parents annoyed? And sometimes I used to, I'll admit, and still do. Point out that in human history, up until about, let me wrap this up, up until about two to three hundred years ago, if your daughter wasn't married by the time she was 15, something was wrong with her. And I point that out because Mary, in your, in your New Testament, she's soft to be married. She's probably 13, 14 years old. Go to your local middle school, pluck out a seventh grader, and tell me if you would trust them to be married, running a household, and raising a family. <laughs> now, your immediate thought is, oh dear Lord. Like, because you know what that would look like. It, it's a train wreck. Now, stop. What are we doing wrong? And I'm serious. What are we doing wrong? Because if we are creating generations of people who are still children at the same age that every other generation in human history considered them adults, one of us is wrong. Either they were expecting too much, or we're expecting too little. Now, I have a general rule of thumb when it comes to history. If you are the first person in thousands of years to come up with something, you're probably wrong. I don't mean like inventing a new product, but I mean like a new idea. Like if you're the first person in human history to have this idea, you're probably wrong. Because odds are somebody else had it before you and realized it was a bad idea, and that's why they buried it quickly. So my assumption is, if a 15-year-old used to be an adult, and now a 15-year-old is a child, we've messed up somewhere along the way. The way we're raising them, the way we're training them, something is wrong. We should expect we should disciple more because they're capable of it. And this should be the goal of not just parenting, but Christian discipleship in general. Our goal so often is to avoid growing up. It's to avoid being the adult in the room. I mean, let's be honest, you, if you are, if you're over 30, you've gone through that phase where you're like, I don't want to be the adult in the room. I still want to be cool. That was dumb. It was dumb when I did it. It was dumb when you did it. It's dumb when everyone does it. Actual discipleship should say, no, I want to be the adult. I want to be respected. Why? Because I am capable. I am wise. I have learned and I am able to do these things. And if I'm not, then show me. That's called adulting, which shouldn't be a verb, but it is now. Because we have so many people who are incapable of doing it. Why? Because as a society, we have two two nine say we have eschewed we have eschewed God's standard and replaced it with our own. And the lie of the world is that if you hold on to youth long enough, you're better. If you hold on to immaturity long enough, you're better. Don't grow up. We're all, we're basically all walking around singing the Toys R Us theme from the 1980s. And you can't live like that. I don't. That'd be in your head the rest of the day. You are welcome. Why does society do this? Because the opposite is to 
walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory, to actually grow up in Christ, to do the hard things of living in this world in a manner that is pleasing to God. That's primarily the difference between what we do now with children and what society has done. Some of it was necessity, but some of it is still a godly influence, especially in this country, in Western society, Western civilization in general. We have lost it. We kicked it out, and what we are left with is 25-year-old children. And I'm guilty of this, too. I was 21, and Tanner was 19 when we got married. You bring me a 19-year-old today and say, you're getting married. You know, my first thought is, you're too young. I'm like, man, I got a hypocrisy nailed. Go, go me. Why is that our home? Because how we train children dominates the last couple generations. We train them to be children. We should train them to be adults. That's what they're going to be the majority of their lives. And then as adults, we should be training to be wise, leading disciples, because that is what we should be the majority of our lives. We shouldn't be children. We should be actual adults, growing, walking, learning as the people of God. Ephesians 4. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Showing tolerance for one another in gentleness, I'm sorry, I lost my spot, and showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one discipleship path leading to Christ. There's not another one. And we lie to ourselves and fail in our walk when we try to convince ourselves in the world there's another way to do this. Verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So Paul returns to thankfulness. Why? Because what God has promised, God has delivered. Hebrews 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. See, that's coming. You would like to be able to stand then and do that work now. Evaluate. Am I growing as a disciple? Am I walking faithfully? If I am not, then you know what you're immediately going to say? All the things that are detangling, all the things that walking along the path faithfully. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ. Imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. How does Paul know they're secure? Because when suffering came, when difficulty came, the Thessalonians didn't wander away. They stayed firm. How did Paul know the church in Jerusalem was secure? If there was ever a place <laughs> that suffering and persecution was coming, it was in and around Jerusalem, from Rome, from Jews, from everywhere. It doesn't matter where the pressure comes, 
It purifies and it is good. It shows you. This is why we should not fear the work of discipleship. It's a growing work. Paul is pointing to an external work here. You've seen it in Thessalonica. You saw it in Philippi. You see it in the book of Acts in the beginning church in Jerusalem. But it's also an internal pressure. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, too often when the world doesn't like us, we get upset about things. We should rejoice. And that sounds really dumb to say out loud. It's the Christian mindset. Every time they don't like us, for the right reason, like you, not because you're being a jerk, because you're being faithful. Every time they don't like us, you are being given an opportunity to strengthen your faith. Because if I can stand firm when they don't like me, then I can stand firm when they do like me. And notice that may be the tactic that's been switching. We've seen this on both ends. We've seen the world like the church, and we've seen the world dislike the church. And we've seen a church that is faithful, and we've seen parts of the church that are unfaithful. Despite what you have to do is discipline yourself to determine how you will live, regardless of what goes on around you. How you will think through your life, your actions, and your ministry, regardless of what goes on around you. How you will think through your service to Christ. How you will disciple, regardless of what Paul continues, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Because they're no longer the people. Who are the people of God? People who are of faith. It's always been the case. Promises came to Abraham when he was uncircumcised, so that it would be, he would be the father of the faithful. Uh, Romans 2 makes this point, Romans 9 makes this point, Galatians 3 makes this point. Paul's even making part of that point here. You see the work of God amongst the nations, amongst the people who have faith. You even see this with the ministry of Jesus in Luke 10. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, by the way, that's quoted to Jewish cities. Praise for two non-Jewish cities. They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for, tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to Hades. It was a warning. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your work. Don't trust in your flesh. Trust in God. Regardless of who you are, regardless of where you come from, regardless of where you are going, your faith is your righteousness is external to you. Your goodness by which you stand before God is not your own. It is Christ's, and it is by standing with him that you gain entrance into God's kingdom. Nothing of you. All of it from God. But we, brethren, all concludes, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, but not in spirit, 
were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, and I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. This is such a good conclusion. Why hasn't Paul gotten back to Thessalonica? <laughs> Satan hasn't allowed it, right? Mm -hmm. Is God surprised by that? God sitting up in heaven going, what are we going to do here, guys? We want to get Paul back to Thessalonica. You've got to go see these people. But Satan keeps stopping him. How are we going to fix this? See, this sounds like a bad cartoon, doesn't it? Or, or like, oh, this is like this is a history channel theology going on right here. Satan is a pain. He is evil. I'm understating this a lot. But he is not the end-all be-all of evil. He's on a leash. And guess who holds the other end? God. God does. His body voice actually answered questions. <laughs> I, I saw it popped up for a second, like a weird man. <laughs> we have to remember this because it is a comfort to us. And you're just going, wait a minute, okay, time out. You just told me that God loosening the leash of Satan and allowing him to make my life miserable is a comfort. Yes, yes, it is. What does suffering in this world do for you? It strengthens you. At least it should. If it doesn't, then your faith is being revealed either way. But the goal is to strengthen your faith. Catch this. First Peter 5. We know part of this, but we like to forget the end. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Why should you do those things? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, this is why Paul gets started Romans 8 out that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he ends the chapter half. Life, death, powers, kingdoms, nothing separates you from the love of Christ. So while you're walking in the world, and while the world is giving you hardship, and while Satan is barking like an animal on a leash, what do you know about the leash? It only goes so far. And at any minute, you snap it back. Now, does that mean it won't does that mean it's always gonna be good? No. What can this world take from you that has any value? Nothing. Satan can make you miserable. This world can take away your financial security. It can take away your physical security. It can take away your health. It can take away all of those things. It can't take away Christ. It can't. It cannot do it. And as all of those things are threatened and shaken, and, and let's be honest, the course we're on right now, are all of those things going to be threatened and shaken? Yes, yes they are. As they are threatened, as they are shaken, they should drive us, not push, not nudge, drive us to the cross. They should return us to the work of Christ constantly because we are secure in Him. We're reminded that all the things we fear, all the things that might have separated us from God, are gone. They're dead, they are buried, and in Him, we are secure. And as we forsake those things and we leave them behind, 
walk in a manner worthy of his calling. We faithfully follow because he has secured us. We cannot be taken away. So I call him close. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. That sounds weird to say, doesn't it? They are Paul's glory and joy. No. Because you know what they are? They are fellow heirs of the promises of Christ. They are fellow residents and workers in the kingdom. And they are proof of the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of Paul as ministry. See, Paul doesn't have to doubt whether or not he's being faithful. Because you know what he can do? I can go look at the Thessalonians. Look, 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 look. God did that. And we were there. I've done my job. There's my proof. And I will rejoice in them, not because of what I've done, but because of what God has done. Both are part of the same work, same joy, because they are part of the same people. What does that people look like? Revelation 7. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can count, from every nation, all tribes, and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, they cry with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God. See, that's fulfillment of God's promise. What were Adam and Eve supposed to do? What was their command? No, no, that was their negative command. What were they supposed to do? Not what they weren't supposed to do. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They failed, didn't they? Humanity failed, because even when they were given the charge again after Noah came off the boat, what was humanity doing? We're going to build a tower so that we won't be separated. <laughs> Why do you think you get a new heaven so mandate will be fulfilled. Why do you think it's every tribe, tongue, nation? What was God's promise to Abraham? What, what peoples will be blessed? All the nations will be blessed. What was the promise to the people who were of faith? Did they have to come from Israel? No, this is the argument from Acts 15 in the book of Galatians. You don't have to get to Israel in order to get to God. You have to get to Christ. doesn't matter where you are, who you are, where you've been. The people of God have always been faith, because the people of faith have always been wherever God has reached them. Always. The promises that God has made in the beginning, he fulfills all the way to the end. And that is why there is glory and why there is joy. Because a faithful and saving God has redeemed a people as he has promised. He has delivered them, brought them safely, and the proof that they're going to make it there is how they demonstrated his work in their lives. This is why Paul keeps calling, live in a manner worthy of your calling. Because how do you know you're going to make it? By making it. I mean, how do you know you're able to walk across those little coal fire walk things that they do? How do you know you can do it? Well, you see people doing it. I see people walking across and none of them are dying. Eventually you do what? You drink four Mai Tais and you think, why not? And you go for it. <laughs> That's how most people end up doing, right? Believe it or not, though, this is Christian living. Why do you think it's so important that people go before us? What are we actually seeing? Hey, it works. Look, look, they didn't die. They made it. 
They walked the walk. They kept the faith. They completed the race. Now what do I do? Walk the walk. I keep the faith. I complete the race. So the people coming behind me do what? The same thing. And how do I know I'm going to make it there? Because that's where I'm going. How do I know I'm going there? Because I am I am eschewing the world. That's my word again. <laughs> I'm casting. I'm kind of <laughs> E-S-C-H-E-W. <laughs> but now we're doing grammar time with my nephew. Live grammar lessons. There you go. With nobody signing up. How do they? You always know. How do I know I'm going to get there? Because I'm getting there. How do I know he'll be there at the end? Because he's always been there at the end. And so I work because he has worked in me. I am successful because he has been successful in me. And I will be faithful because he is faithful and is carrying me along. And that's the message that I proclaim. That's the discipleship work that I do. And in doing that, love with that in it, is my work in vain. No. Because by being faithful, it is guaranteed to be successful. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, we say thank you for the work that you have done and for the work that you continue to do. That by your grace, there are people who are saved. That by your mercy, there is a kingdom being built. And by your power and your perseverance, we are still working and ministering. And you are still saved. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us. That we would continue on in that work, faithfully ministering, serving, discipling, growing and aligning our world, how we live, what we do, taking captive every thought that is contrary to you, bringing our lives into submission of your kingdom, not our own. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.